This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Rise above and be in control with today's business headlines, driven by Volvo Cars. 7.48 right now, you're listening to The Morning Run. Melissa and Han here with you as we bring you the top business stories of the day. Uh, but in about 15 minutes or so, we have the breakfast grill. And today we're going to be looking at the Grand Prix because Mark Gallagher, the Grand Prix motor racing boss, will be on the show. Han, you're a bit of a motorhead. You tell us, what, we, what are you going to be talking about? Actually, not so much. I'm not so much a motorhead. I really? Used, I used to be because it was part of my job. I had to cover F1, but you know we hardly cover F1 Oh, you really... Told me, I thought you were a huge racing fan. Fake it till you make it. Yeah, that's right. Okay, look, uh, so uh, the F1 calendar is set to uh, get longer. There are about 20, 21 races now, right, with the final race being this weekend. But then by, you know, let's say 2020, there are some hopes of making it to 25 races. Vietnam is set to get uh, included onto the calendar, perhaps the city of Miami, Florida, and also the Netherlands as well, right? So the the question is, with this waning popularity of Formula One, is adding more races the solution oh, to the problem. Oh, is it waning? Is, is yeah. the prop- uh, popularity, is that on the decline? So I'll give an example. TV viewership over the past decade has fallen by 40%. Oh. So it's about, you know, Why? Half. Why is that? What do you reckon? Well, we'll try and find okay, out from well, Mark Gallagher. I should be then. listening. I, I want to listen to find out yeah. why this uh, there's been a decline in this pop- the popularity of the sport. Yeah, but then uh, just keep in mind that this interview was recorded previously. This was before it was announced that Vietnam will host their F1 race. Also before Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes won their fifth consecutive double world titles. We've had the same winner in F1 since 2014. It's getting so predictable. It's getting so so boring. We're going to talk about how that feeds into the uh, waning popularity of the sports and of course the economics of hosting such uh, events because you know here in Malaysia we stopped hosting F1 uh, races at Isipang. Mm, okay, alright. More on that on the Breakfast Grill coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Alright, uh, let's turn our attention to of course the biggest story of the day has got to be uh, coming off that interview that the, pri- the former Prime Minister did with Sina Harian where he admitted to uh, in a, in a way, I guess, um, being duped. That's how NST is framing that story. But he mm. admitted that Jolo may have lied. Um, so now we are also looking at a New York Times article. So the New York Times yesterday reported that Lloyd Blankfein, which is the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, he had personally met with Joe Lowe at the Goldman Sachs headquarters. And this was back in December 2012. Right. And actually, there's a Bloomberg story out from earlier this month also talking about a 2009 meeting between Blankfein and uh, Joe Lowe, mm. right? So there may have been multiple meetings here based on you know what New York Times and uh, Bloomberg is reporting. Yeah, but right now, um, so in response to this um, this article, so a Goldman spokesperson has reported to have said, look, the meeting was with Muhammad um, Ahmad Badawi, the CEO of ABBA, and it was an introductory meeting with him as ABBA was an existing client. And Joe Lowe was apparently there at ABBA's request. So, Mm. in a way, I think they're trying to uh, distance themselves. Yeah, so just setting a timeline, so there was a possible 2009 meeting, mm-hmm. 2012, and also one in 2013. So there were several times. In other words, you know, this deal, this, these 1MDB deals went all the way to the top. I have to say, though, that 2013 meeting, I think some people at Goldman dispute that mm. Jolo had met then. So right. that, that's still up in the air. But but still, you know, we're getting more details now. And this was one of the, uh, the, the, the key 
uh, themes that you explored in your breakfast grill, right, Melissa, mm-hmm. with uh, Tom, Tom Wright. Right, yeah. He was talking about, well, the, the question now is how much did Goldman know of these deals? And since that breakfast grill, we now have all these reports. Well, so I think this is important for a couple of reasons, right? Uh, and you're pre- precisely right, right. So how much did Goldman know about this uh, about this deal, about what Joe Lowe uh, was allegedly doing? So I think what this now represents is that this the scope of this scandal for Goldman, it's expanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the fact that federal prosecutors in the US are now examining this 2012 meeting, this uh, 20, 2009 meeting, 2012 meeting, and allegedly the 2013 meeting, means that the um, Goldman can no longer, uh, I guess, claim what they've been claiming so far, that mm. this had been the uh, actions of a few rogue employees within the bank. Right. If it goes all the way to the top, then how can they deny culpability? Which is also the question I'd ask the former finance minister slash uh, former prime minister. If it goes all the way to the top, how can you deny culpability? Right. And so it went all the way to the top on, uh, you know, even with these warnings uh, allegedly coming from within the bank, right? So Goldman's compliance staff had reported rejected Lowe's attempts to be their client since 2009, yet those meetings still went on, mm. right? And we know that Tim Leisner has blamed this uh, culture of secrecy that kind of aided these uh, ill-advised deals, at least on the part of Malaysians. They were certainly ill-advised, right? So again, you know, where do they draw the line when it comes to who's ultimately responsible within the Goldman ranks? Yeah, so uh, as we were speaking a bit earlier about how Najib had um, admitted that Joe Lowe had cheated the government. I just want to mention a couple of tweets here. A funny one from Isa Yusuf who said, hey, can I request a song? Can you play It Wasn't Me by Shaggy? And he wants to dedicate <laughs> that to our ex-Prime Minister. Also, uh, we have a, men, a, men, a tweet from uh, Sheikh Sharir who is asking, hey, Najib has given interviews to Al Jazeera and Sina Haria. Maybe it's time that you guys invite him to the breakfast grill and he can answer all the questions himself. I'd like to reassure you, um, Sheikh Sharir, that we are working on that. Well, we just got to make sure it doesn't walk out, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> or just talk about the economy. All right. Um, the other thing that we're also looking at is news that Malaysia is not expected to follow the um, to follow IPIC's move to file civil proceedings against common sex. So we spoke about that a little bit. Um, I think it was yesterday that IPIC is planning to uh, move uh, or to file the civil suit against Goldman. Um, and Malaysia now saying, well, we're not going to follow suit. We're not going. We're already battling IPIC in a London court. So. Uh, we'll leave it at that. All right, so this is on the front page of today's Malaysian Reserve. Uh, then they are quoting an unnamed government source. So Malaysia sues IPIC, IPIC suing sues Goldman. Goldman. And Shouldn't we also sue Goldman? Why not? Why won't yeah. we sue Goldman? So P. Gunasegaram, uh, who is a regular on Pressing Matters, also an independent business analyst, author of the 1MDB scandal that brought down the government. That's the title of his book. In an op-ed in Malaysia Kini, Aguna wrote that Malaysia can take criminal action against Goldman Sachs. Um, um, and particularly if that criminal action is established against Goldman for the act- criminal activities against 1MDB, that would then pave the way for the civil action and the return of not just the 600 million US dollars, but also that greater claim of 2.7 billion US dollars, which is the amount of money that the DOJ is saying was stolen from Malaysia. Right. Recall that uh, press conference by the DOJ, you know, they said ultimately, who is the victim in this case? It is the Malaysian people. So we should get that money back. But going back to that op-ed by Guna, 
you know, he's saying that if criminal action is shown on the part of those Goldman officials, uh, you know, then it will follow that the bank's top management should have reasonably known that there's something about this deal as well, right? So, I mean, again, especially given the incredibly high fees that were being placed mm, onto these right. deals, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, this was right after the uh, financial crisis. They're not making money, but they see this tiny little Southeast Asian country giving them a whole lot of money. You don't ask why. Well, we're going to see that the fall in uh, Goldman's share price in the recent days, uh, weeks as well, has been, I think, uh, impacting investor confidence in this bank. But I also want to bring it, uh, bring another story to our attention this morning is the fact that the uh, the leadership overhaul, which you know we saw sweep uh, corporate Malaysia not too long ago, looks uh, looks to be still in the works. At least two CEOs are rumored to be leaving their respective organisations in the near future. Who are they? RHB Managing Director Datuk Cairo Saleh Ramli and CIMB Group CEO Tengku Datuk Sri Zafrul Aziz rumoured to be leaving their positions, according to Starbase. Right, so a sequel to the shake-up, a shake-up sequel perhaps. Uh, 2. Part 2. 0. Yeah, part 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, Remix. <laughs> Remix. So looking at what's been going on with some of these banks, look, CIMB, or you, they already saw Datuk Sri Nazir leaving his role as CIMB's uh, chairman back in September. Then over there at RHB, the Omar Siddiq, uh, he mm-hmm. uh, was moved uh, as head of group wholesale banking to CIMB as group COO. So there were some changes over there. Of course, if you look back over the last uh, few months since May 9th, there have been a slew of changes at GLCs and GLICs. So everything from Datu Wan Kamuruzaman leaving Kuap, uh, Telecoms, acting group CEO, uh, resigned last Friday. Of course, Tan Sri Lodin being replaced at LTAT. Uh, Abdul Wahid Omar, big name, you know, Muhammad Ibrahim, the list goes on and on. So the, the names that you've listed, Han, some of these are really good good um, CEOs. They, mm. they, they did well at their jobs. So I don't know whether you know we're going to have, this is again, I feel like it's a remix, right? Part two, we're going to have that conversation once again of whether um, it was purely based on the KPIs, based on their performance and whether their leaving had to do with... Um, bigger considerations, right. bigger I mean, pressures. Right. So you now what we've been hearing from the government is that there is this, or at least based on analysis, right, there is this trust deficit between the government of the day and some of those in the leadership of these GLCs. But we don't know any better, right? Mm. No, are, are there specific as to why uh, you know, Muhammad Ibrahim actually had to vacate the BNM post? Why Azman Mokhtar had to leave uh, uh, Kazana? Do you think it would help with the um, you know the the perception if it was made more transparent as of to course. why, right? Yeah, uh, you know, and and it's uh, according to Starbase, not just these two men that we talked about, CIMB and RHB, uh, not just Karisale and uh, Tugusafro, but also according to Starbase, some CEOs at smaller financial institutions and property firms that are. All Owned by GLCs, apparently these CEOs also likely to be departing from their roles. Right, you know, and we also know that from a fiscal perspective, the uh, current government is seen to be more reliant on dividends from GLCs and GLICs. So I understand. Fine, you need people who can, who will play ball with you. Well, get, well, apparently, according to the source that the star spoke to, it's the overhaul, the change of the old guard. Right, you know, yeah. So I, I get that, but again, if we, well, if they are saying that's the whole CAT thing, you know. 
competency, accountability, and transparency. Well, then you know, tell us exactly why yeah. all these individuals are being uh, either removed or as being forced to step aside from their positions. Yeah, and I think you know BFM or the Morning Run as uh, hopefully the the voice that speaks for the business community. I think let's address this disquiet that has indeed grown after May 9th uh, among the corporate sector about this um, so-called purge, right? So that, I think we're going to keep a very close eye on this GLC Shake-Up 2.0. But let's turn our attention to cars. Proton plans to introduce a new car model which is equipped with a 1,500cc turbocharged engine uh, in the near future. So the head of engineering at Proton said that this is in line with the current global trend of car makers turning to turbocharged engines as opposed to naturally aspirated engines. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, well, What uh, is naturally aspirated engines? Uh, no idea. you got to ask Proton. But I, I do uh, like the fact that it's 1.5 so that means I believe those who buy this car then can qualify for those fuel subsidies, right? Because oh, yes, remember, that's a good point. 1.5. But anyways, so there's this new car model. On top of that, there's the highly anticipated X70. That's Proton's yeah. first ever SUV. Uh, so they revealed it at the uh, uh, the recent KL International Motor Show. I think what, what this represents really is the wider picture, right? What what we want to see is is Proton getting back on track, mm. right? So yes, turbocharged engine, engines, naturally, charged, uh, naturally aspirated engines. The idea is you know Proton's got this X70 in the line uh, in the works now they're looking at moving into more models right so um, could we be seeing this this as the turn of the tide for Proton uh, are they are they going to be um, new releasing new models and how well do you reckon these models will be taken up according to uh, the X7 at the moment they've already gotten about 10,000 bookings already ahead. X70 X70 excuse right. me even before the launch on next month in a few weeks time right no we have seen the good work that Gili has has done with Volvo, uh, right? You know, uh, letting them do their thing and letting them innovate themselves, even though they are a, a, a major shareholder there. So, you know, hopefully those kind of fortunes that Volvo has seen, Proton can emulate as well and ultimately become internationally competitive. This is why I love our listeners. Why? Victor Lowe has a WhatsApp in to say it's cars with carburetors. That's what it means. Okay. Don't all cars have carburetors? I'm going to try and Google what a carburetor is right now. We're totally showing our neck off. We're not motorheads, right? Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, then uh, juxtapose Proton's performance with ProDua's performance because at present, uh, at the recent um, car motor show, um, ProDua had released or teased teased a new mystery model, which they are referring to as the new sport utility mob, um, car. So they're saying that this is the upcoming SUV, mm. codenamed D38L. All right, so this confirms uh, rumours that because even during my breakfast grill with uh, Porodua uh, many, many moons ago, I actually addressed this with uh, Porodua and asking, well, you know, would you guys have an SUV and how will, how will it be priced? So now there's this new mystery model as a new sport utility uh, mobile. So, Mm. yeah, it looks like those rumours are indeed true. So, do you think this could go head-to-head with Proton's um, X70? Yeah, because globally speaking, there is this shift away from sedans to your SUVs, you know, that's certainly being uh, driven over there in the States. So, it looks like that flavour or that trend is uh, permeating Asian markets as well. Now, the question is, you know, whether or not Malaysians uh, love SUVs enough? Um, Well, Mel, you've got an SUV, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, there we go. So, you are proof (laughs) of that trend. uh, I I do, but I still don't know what a turbocharged engine is. 
Paul Ganesh on WhatsApp says uh, we should get the cruise control boys to help us understand. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to check in with them after this. Uh, before we take a look at the opening numbers from Bursa Malaysia, I also want to say that a naturally aspirated engine gets its air intake solely from its atmospheric pressure, while a turbocharger or a supercharger has an element of forced induction. Top marks to our top team, top producer team behind the I scenes. I still have no idea what that means. <laughs> We've got the opening numbers from Bursa Malaysia. Keith, come next. BFM 89.9. Keeping you on track for peak business performance with the new Volvo XC40, the expression of innovation. Volvo, made by Sweden. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.